Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and like every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m., you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, and as most of you know, I love this city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood or more to the point of street, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York place special? Sometimes, kind of like tonight, it's sort of a hybrid show. We host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Um, On prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as talking about American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in the city, about half of them. Uh, The show a couple of weeks ago talked about the history of New Yorkers who ran for president, which was another really interesting show. Uh, We've talked about the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've looked at the history of African-Americans who were here actually back to the time of the Dutch. We've looked at the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. We've looked at our public libraries. We actually have three of them in New York. We visited a couple of our train stations, um, crossed some of our bridges. We have great bridges in New York, and even talked about the history of coffee and tea in the city. Uh, Something has to fuel New York, and uh, it's caffeine sometimes. After the broadcast, you can catch our episodes on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and you can find us on other services. Tonight, we're going to sort of look at a neighborhood, but more particularly a street, a boulevard, a grand boulevard, Central Park West. And our uh, this is such a, a profound epi- uh, boulevard we're going to look at tonight that we're actually going to have one guest instead of two. There's a lot to talk about. And my guest is the returning Rediscovering New York guest and the show's special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, providing creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David co-hosts a series called Room at the Top. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking and get-together series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David is quite published. His latest blog is called Every Building on Fifth. It documents every single building on Fifth Avenue. So if you think that uh, covering all these buildings on Central Park West this evening is a big uh, thing, you ought to check that blog out. He goes from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, a warm and hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Hey, Jeff. It's always good to be here. You're a regular, and some of our listeners know you and your background, but uh, we have growing listeners, and I see that on our podcast numbers every week. Some people don't know about you and your background. You are from the metropolitan area, but not the city itself, at least not originally. 
Uh, no, I grew up on Long Island until I was about 12, and then I uh, moved with my family up to the Hudson River Valley, where I am today. I did live in New York for a while, post-college, Vassar, as you well know, being a Vassar grad yourself. Uh, but yeah, I, I am a uh, sort of New York area resident as well as a I'm always fascinated by by people's inspirations and, um, you know, what had them take up uh, the study or the appreciation of of bringing great things about New York to other people. How did you get interested in architectural history and in New York's history in particular? Well, uh, my mother would create these dioramas of cities that we were going to visit when we were traveling, um, essentially Montreal, where my father's family came from. And I remember her like pointing out different elements of cities and it sort of like kind of keyed my eye into like, oh, that's this type of building, that's this other type of building. Uh, when my siblings and I were still all children, we were actually the first children to be hired by the New York State Parks Department to serve as costume interpreters um, at the old Bethpage um, restoration site. So uh, we would go to the old Bethpage site uh, for the autumn fair and dress up in period costume and kind of demonstrate toys and games and bicycles and things of that nature that were there at that time. And we had a chance to actually stay over sometimes in the buildings themselves, which were from the you know, 1780s to the 1850s. And I think that really awoke a kind of a curiosity in me to sort of see how historical buildings existed, you know, how they had come about, who had built them, what turns they had taken, and it led to a lifelong interest, I think, in, in architecture and urbanism. Now, I actually want to ask you a question about um, 19th century games. Um, I have a listing that's in contract now. It's an extraordinary house in Fort Greene. It's 33 feet wide, and it's right on the park. And the first owner was uh, a toy manufacturer. And ab above the doorposts, there are all of these round things that almost look like they could have been toys. Were, were tops really big in, in, in the late 19th century as far as kids' games were round things oh, yes. part of the? Tops, tops have been um, a uh, – they were definitely a thing from probably the 18th century onwards, if not earlier. Um, tops, as you may know, actually played uh, a certain role in some – um, religious games uh, that were played uh, during holiday seasons. Uh, the dreidel, I believe, was a form of a top. So, it, and that, that was definitely a children's game that was associated with the Jewish high holidays. So, yeah, tops were were very very popular, and musical tops were you know where you would press the the, the top of the top, and the the top would roll and actually play music. Were things that existed in the from the twenties on through the fifties and sixties, and I remember. Um, seeing a couple examples of those when I was a kid uh, that had belonged to my mother and other family members. So, yeah, I would say that's a possibility for mm. sure. In fact, on the side, I'd, I'd love to show you this house. We should do it uh, before the closing in a couple of weeks when you're in, when you're in town. I think you'd uh, really appreciate it. Um, Central Park West, talking about streets on parks. Um, we're going to talk about its architectural history and some of the great buildings. But first, I want to talk about the history of it and the background of it. First, when, when did the street take on the name Central Park West? Because it, it, couldn't, it wasn't its original name. No, uh, it was called 8th Avenue. Uh, originally, when it opened in 1816. And as we began to see a, a wave of new development finally rendering the street address profitable, in a sense, 
Um, people felt 8th Avenue just wasn't dignified enough. 8th Avenue was too much uh, sort of associated with the slaughterhouses and, you know, kind of disreputable kind of neighborhoods that were down to the south, which, of course, now the Meatpacking District is one of the most glamorous areas in the city. Uh, but they petitioned the city council to change the name of the street, and it was changed in 1883 to Central Park West. Um, Central Park South, Central Park North all came into uh, sort of effect during that same time. It was meant to promote the fact that the buildings that had that address had direct frontage onto Central Park itself. Hmm. Now, I, I also want to give a, a shout out to um, the reference folks at the New York Public Library who helped uh, provide some material. So thank you very much, New York Public Library. We've actually had uh, guests from the library on other episodes. And I was uh, it was interesting to, to, to read up that um, even though the grid was planned in 1811, and, you know, the, as the city was developed, streets would get surveyed. Um, but some of the side streets bordering the park were not even laid out until the 1880s on the west side. They were on the east side before then. Um, and in 1865, the commissioners of the park were authorized to complete the laying out of the streets west of the park, which hadn't been uh, which hadn't been completed. Um, we see really grand buildings there today, David. What kinds of structures uh, were on Central Park before the buildings we know today were built? Certainly there had to have been other buildings there. They just couldn't have first put up these apartment buildings. Well, the interesting thing is, is that the Upper West Side first developed around the Broadway Corridor. Broadway, you have to understand, was the main north-south corridor in Manhattan at the time. And it was also the street that led up to uh, the Harlem River and passed into Westchester County and became the main north, sort of north-south thoroughfare north of New York City. Uh, so Broadway became the place that was developed uh, first. And Central Park itself remained kind of sporadic. There were some very luxurious townhouses that were built facing the park and sort of little groups here and there. But the Panic of 1873 really did a number on luxury development in New York. And it wasn't until a 10-year period had passed that we began to see luxury buildings again becoming part of that social fabric. Prior to that, Central Park West was kind of a disaster. It was a bit of a mishmash, as was Fifth Avenue north of, let's say, 86th Street, and for the same reasons, um, you know, the financial crises and not quite knowing whether or not the park itself was kind of a viable address. So you had things like, you know, the little old wooden buildings that had been there before the laying out of, of the grid, remnants of Seneca Village, which was a, uh, a free black community, the first that was sort of African-American free community in New York City. Um, you had rather louche hotels that went up. Um, louche hotels, not not seedy, but louche specifically? Yes. Yes, louche, I would say. Uh, sort of hotels geared towards the bachelor lifestyle. Some of these were rather grand, but they were also sort of architecturally dubious. Um, and there were a lot of vacant lots. There was a lot of mud. There was a lot of rubble. There was a lot of construction. Um, Central Park West didn't really become Central Park West until after the early 1880s. Oh. And in 1864, there was a horse car line that ran along 8th Avenue that went up to the 50s. It was extended to West 84th Street in 1864. That's as the park mm -hmm. was, was, was being developed. Right. And then the horse cars were replaced by the street rail service uh, in the 1880s that went up to 125th Street. Um, and of course, we have the IND subway that was built, but that was built in the 20s. Um, and the construction of the Ninth Avenue well in the 1800s, this is before uh, the subway was built on Broadway, added to the attractiveness of the area 
and also fired up the land speculation, um, including oh, one yeah. block east of Central Park. That was a big part of. Uh, um, and actually, the panic, uh, I think actually the, the L train was built after the panic of 1873. It wasn't opened until, until after that. Mm-hmm. Um, how was development stimulated along Central Park West? Well, I think one of the, the sort of the, the bellwethers for that came with a kind of a reemergence of uh, sort of a more uh, sort of a more solid consumer base in the early 1880s. People felt that they'd weathered the kind of financial storm. And then uh, you had the development of the very first luxury apartment buildings. And of course, the very first one of those on Central Park West, although not the first one in the entire city, uh, was the Dakota. Uh, which arrives around 1880 to 1884. That's when they build it. Uh, it's designed by Henry J. Hardenberg, whose other better-known New York works include the Plaza Hotel, um, which was built in 1900-1902, so 20 years after the Dakota, very different style. Uh, the building is interesting for being built of laid masonry. And what that means is that it is a self-supporting structure. There isn't a steel skeleton in it, which is- oh, even, even the rolled steel um, yeah. had come out like from the 1850s. Why, why, why didn't they use steel? Why did they only do it on masonry? There are, two, there are a couple of theories about that. One was that the people involved in terms of the developers and the architect himself were masons. They were leery of the idea of the steel skeleton. They felt that was not Masonry, it wasn't architecture, it wasn't really building. Um, but the other thing is, is that they wanted uh, people to feel that this was a building that was well constructed all the way down to the foundation. Um, this is a building that actually um, an architect once said, this building has a estimated lifetime of 600 years before it's going to need any kind of repairs at all. And I think that they overbuilt in a way to kind of prove that they were bringing a kind of new standard of building to the area. And that might be another part of it. But yeah, the, the, the Mason connection is also potentially a reason why they did not offer a steel skeleton. There are some buildings in New York City, not very many of them, that are sort of proto-skyscrapers, as the Dakota is. The Dakota is 12 stories tall. It is an elevator building. It is not a building that you can get to the top of by walking up the stairs. So it is actually an early skyscraper, which most people don't realize. But some of the other early skyscrapers do involve masonry construction because the client or the architect or the engineer made that decision and said, no, this is the safest way to go. Still construction, still something we're not completely uh, you know, married to. Um, I think it is the only laid masonry building in Central Park West, and it's one of the very few um, laid masonry buildings after um, the 1880s period that is of this height. Um, there's only two others that I could think of in all of New York, but it is a, it's an interesting fact about the Dakota. Mm. Um, the other luxury apartment buildings that were built on Central Park West couldn't be built uh, until electricity uh, lines were laid out uh, yes. in 1896. So the question is, well, how did the Dakota do it? The answer is that they generated their own power for their elevators. Yes, they were. They were a fully self-contained unit. And I think that standard of kind of self-containment also made it attractive to uh, wealthy tenants. I mean, this was the first building, not, not exactly the first building, but the first entirely new building in a new neighborhood to really go after kind of the upper class market. And they won them over. Um, interesting thing about the Dakota, 
Um, actually, David, we're going to take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about Central Park West and also about the Dakota. We have to talk more about that incredible building. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back and you're back to rediscovering new york and the special episode about one of the grandest boulevards in all of new york the famous central park west my guest for the entire show is the famous david griffin david is the <laughs> ceo and founder of landmark branding we'll talk a little about about landmark branding after the next break um we were in the middle of talking about the dakota before i was so rudely uh took us off the air for, for for a minute and a half for some for some messages um what's david what's the architectural style of the dakota and what makes it truly um special in terms of how it looks to f- from the outside well the dakota is interesting in that it is uh one of the very, very few buildings in New York City, and I would say in the United States, that really kind of follows what was called a German Renaissance look. It's based after the kind of Gothic that was associated with town halls, and not only in Germany, but in the northern part of Europe during the, like, say, 16th through early 18th century. And um, uh, there was one sort of a, a critic who, when he first viewed it, had said, oh, yes, Beer Baron Revival is what he called it. So um, it, it wasn't always complimented. We do think of it as a handsome building, and I think it is one. It's got some great details. Um, it has a dry moat around it. Um, it has um, details that show Hercules kind of in his lion's robe around the dry moat. Uh, there is a, a pediment that shows a, a profile of a Dakota Indian 
um, just to kind of like circle back to um, the name of the Dakota, a lot of people, there's like a kind of a folk mythology that it was called the Dakota because it was so far north and so far west of, you know, where things were going on. In New fact, York urban legend, with does it yes, turn out? The, the developer uh, just seemed to like the names of Midwestern states because there were buildings that he was behind uh, called the Wyoming and the Montana that were absolutely in the heart of Midtown. Uh, the Montana actually was on the site of the Seagram building. It was taken down for the Seagram building in the um, early 1950s. Uh, the I recall that there's a Wyoming on East 3rd Street in the East Village. Uh, there might be more yeah. than one. It was, there was definitely a fad for it because people were very interested in the, the opening up of the planes during that time period. You have to understand that this was kind of an interesting kind of era of westward expansion. And people were interested in kind of claiming those names for themselves as sort of a symbolic way of representing uh, the, the new forces of American capitalism and uh, politi uh, politics. So. Mm. so very, you know, obviously a lot of people lived at the Dakota were very famous. Um, most infamously, I suppose, John Lennon, who was unfortunately murdered outside of the building's entrance. Um, his widow, who's the artist Yoko Ono, still lives in the building. Other tenants have included Lauren Bacall, Rudolf Nureyev, Roberta Flack, Judy Garland, Rosemary Clooney, Lillian Gish, John Amoth, and Leonard Bernstein, the conductor. Um, interestingly, yes, the, the, the film was the um, setting for the film version of Ira Levin's horror novel, Rosemary's Baby. Although if you read the novel, you realize the Bramford, which is the fictional apartment building in the novel, is actually based on the Wyoming, which is on Broadway. Oh. Yeah, it's not based on the Dakota at all. Um, Although those scenes in the Dakota are really very memorable, including the when she's in the elevator. I uh, think it's one of, one of the great ironies, of course, Mia Farrow stars in the film and she lives a block north in the Langham. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of the Langham, that's another building that is designed in a European style. Yes, but almost 25 years later, built in 1905, uh, the Langham is actually an exceptionally graceful French Renaissance uh, Second Empire Revival apartment house. It's one of four major uh, sort of French-styled apartment houses that kind of began to set the tone for Central Park for us. Serves a very interesting contrast to its older neighbor. Now, it stands on land that was built, uh, that was owned by the Clark family. The Clarks are the people who developed the Dakota. They didn't want to have something north of Dakota that would be taller than the Dakota. So they want they didn't sell the land. They were like, you, if you buy this land, you only have to build a building that's shorter than Dakota. So um, they actually wrote a covenant into the yes. into the wow. Exactly, exactly. There was a restriction on that lot, and they couldn't sell it. They couldn't sell it for twenty five years, and finally, like, all right, whatever, we give up. Do whatever you want. And so someone bought it, and they built the Langham to be almost exactly the height of the Dakota. I don't think they wanted to overshadow their neighbor, but they did kind of make a, a sort of a, an interesting kind of contrast. Um, you know, the, the Dakota is very gothic. It's very sort of, you know, a little bit sort of sinister almost. It's very Victorian. And the Langham is very graceful. It's sort of beau arts. It's all about kind of this very, very sensuous kind of hedonistic Baroque. Um, the uh, developer was a Bohm and Kuhn, and the architect was Clinton and Russell. Uh, one of the original amenities at the Langham 
Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. The Langham, um, uh, there were first-time amenities that were available at the Langham that had not been seen in apartment buildings before. Absolutely. Uh, one of the most amusing of them was the ice-making machine, which caught the eye of the New York Times when the building opened. So th this is a quote from the newspaper. Um, they're speaking in rapturous tones, I'm sure. Quote, in each icebox is an extra coil of pipe through which a freezing mixture circulates so that if a tenant wants a piece of real ice... Without going to the concierge for it, all he has to do is fill a small metal pan with water, place it within the coil, and in a few minutes, its contents will be frozen, solid. The emphasis is original. Um, this is obviously a useful corrective to all that fake ice we've had so very much of. And who are some of the more famous people who've, who've lived at the Langham? Uh, they've included Carly Simon, the singer, Basil Rathbone, the actor, and Mia Farrow, of course. Um, interestingly, she opened up her own apartment, her actual apartment to the cameras of Woody Allen's Hannah and her sisters. But if you see that film, you see the actual, not only the layout, but Miss Farrow's own sort of furnishings and uh, paintings and uh, I believe family members and staff. So it's a, uh, it, it's an interesting movie just for that, that kind of glimpse into that type of apartment in addition for its, its other, you know, obvious merits as a piece of cinema. I wonder if Woody Allen was living at the Langham with her when that was filmed. Probably. No. No, he wasn't? Oh. I think Alan always lived separately from the Farrow. Oh. But, I mean, I could be mistaken. But no, I don't. I, I think he lived, in, he lived in Carnegie Hill. So. Oh. Well, I won't make a joke about them being on the same on the premises of that. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, moving on to another building that was built uh, in actually the same year that the Langham was built. Um, we have the St. Urban that's a little bit further up north on Central Park West. Tell us about the St. Urban. It's a 285 Central Park West. It's an absolutely wonderful bar. It's confection. It is actually closer to the Anthony Apartments than it is to the Langham, although they're both in a French style. It's one of the very few apartment buildings of its time, as the Ansonia was, to include a carriage drive entrance. So there's sort of a recessed a uh, vestibule that actually could take carriages at the time. Kind of interesting to go and look at it because it looks so small that you don't think that any vehicle could get in or out of it, but um, it evidently worked for the vehicles of the time. Uh, the name seems to have been a pun simply on the word urban, as there's no reason for it to be named after the saint of the period. And, and wasn't there a pope? Is, weren't, weren't there popes urban too? Yes, pope? yes. exactly, exactly. So, but that, that appears to be a little bit of a, a, of a gag. And um, evidently, given the, the quality of the architecture, it's where the famous critic Ada Louise Huxtable spent her childhood. Now, of all the buildings on Central Park West, the St. Urban seemed to have been the one that was plagued the most by tragedy. Um, there was an elevator mishap involving a delivery boy where the, the lad fell down the shaft because the doors were left open. Um, it was a fatal accident. There was a, a tremendous brawl between two very wealthy stockbroker bachelors that sent, quote unquote, a shower of bric-a-brac out onto Central Park West. Mm, um, two stockbroker bachelors having a fight, throwing things at each other. You can imagine you can imagine what they were what they were fighting about. They refused to say. Let's put it that <laughs> way. So um, in 1990, the building was extensively renovated and um, getting back kind of its copper shingled mansard. So it's actually in very good shape. And it's been one of the kind of the rare, real treats, I think, of Central Park West. If you're looking south to see it with its corner tower and all these sort of belvedere's, kind of baroque kind of figurations around it. Mm. 
I wonder if, uh, well, the Belvedere Castle was was designed and built before the St. Urban was. So, um, yes, I wonder I wonder if anything about the Belvedere inspired some of the architecture at the St. Urban. Um, I don't think so, because the, the Belvedere Castle is in kind of a, an English romantic gothic. It's sort of a folly. And the, the St. Urban is a it, it's much more sort of a standard Parisian uh, Baroque kind of building. It's very much of the Parisian style, much more so even than the Langham. Well, I'm so glad when you're on the show, David, and you put to bed some of my more uh, questionable <laughs> uh, 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 questions about 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 some of the influences of of, of New York's greatest buildings. Um, on that note, we're going to take another break. Uh, we'll be back in a moment with our continuing conversation with David Griffin about Central Park West. We'll be back. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. curious person always asking questions do you desire to be in the know then join me antonia host of so now you know thursdays at 5 p.m at talkradio.nyc listen in as i attempt to satisfy that curiosity i will be talking with amazing everyday people join the fun so now you know on thursdays at 5 p.m at talkradio.nyc you're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. to Rediscovering New York. Support for the program comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495- 0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. 
There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. It's called Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Brown Harris. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook. It's called Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, including on Central Park West, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or you, someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. One of the note before we get back to David, this is not a show about politics nor news oriented, but uh, I remember my days at Vassar, I would uh, read things on the teletype machine from UPI, David. This is back in the late 70s on WVKR 92.3 Poughkeepsie Free Radio. And I just got saw something that uh, the president has fired the official Department of Homeland Security who uh, um, uh, said that there was no uh, malfeasance in any of the voting uh, in terms of the systems. Um, He's now history along with other great public servants of ours. Anyway, moving right along. Um, Let's talk about landmark branding. I think you have a great business. What, what does landmark branding do exactly? And what, uh, in what inspired you to create it? Well, thanks Jeff. Um, So landmark branding provides um, sort of customized marketing support for owners, developers, um, architects, realtors, brokers. Uh, And what I do is I work with them to create text and presentations, VIP events, special tours, films, um, podcast material, um, similar to the show that we're doing, where we discuss the historic importance or the architectural significance of the buildings that they represent or that they're creating. Um, I work with both new and old buildings. Um, I've done everything from, as I said, VIP tours of building sites, uh, neighborhood tours, uh, training sessions for brokers. I do individual uh, writings of listings. I do corporate bios. I do building profiles. I've worked for SL Green, um, worked for Compass. I've worked for, you know, most of the major sort of real estate brokerage firms, individual brokers of those firms. And uh, I really enjoy what it is that I do. Uh, you mentioned my blog, Every Building on Fifth, uh, sort of a, a, a tiny little time capsule history sort of slash profile of every single building on Fifth Avenue. And there are um, a thousand entries on that, aren't there? Uh, uh, there are about 600, actually. Okay, sorry. But no, but there, I mean, there are it's a more lot. than 100 pages of just you know, building after building after building after building on Fifth Avenue. Years to do it. So. And I'm working on a uh, potential book project on the um, the penthouse apartment as an architectural type. So I uh, have a couple other things up my sleeve, plans for a new blog that I'm going to be launching in 2021. And yeah, so uh, if people are interested in contacting me or learning more about it, the uh, website is landmarkbranding.com. And I am available at dgriffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, at landmarkbranding.com. Uh, the blog is also on the website. So it starts at Washington Square, as you said, and it concludes the Harlem Armory, I think one of the city's greatest Art Deco buildings. Mm. Well, you, you've you been on the show so much, you anticipate my questions, which is in how can our listeners get in touch with you? And yeah. uh, <laughs> you've already done it. That's great. 
Um, well, moving back to Central Park West, let's take a look at another building um, that was built before the First World War, but that's a little bit lower, down at 50 Central Park West. Do you want to tell us about the Prasada? Yes, the Prasada was one of the four buildings, including the, the Dakota first, then the Langham, the St. Urban, and the Prasada, kind of established Central Park West as an avenue of tall but very luxurious apartment blocks. Now, in this case, 12, actually 13 stories. Um, unfortunately, extensive alterations in 19 have removed the original mansard roof that was a prominent feature uh, from this building. Uh, but there are still the amazing stained glass arcades inside. I've had a chance to visit inside there. I, I have friends that live at the Prasada, and it, it, the, the interiors are just magnificent. Um, Edna Ferber, who is um, a, a playwright and um, journalist who I think is kind of maybe a little bit faded from popular view in terms of name recognition, uh, was a tenant of the Prasada. And she wrote uh, So Big and something that I think a lot of people still know about, the, the musical Showboat while living there. Uh, she loved the building so much, she was once quoted as saying, I am never going to give up this wonderful place. Never. They'll have to wheel old Grandma Ferber out when they tear the building down. Well, uh, Miss Ferber is no longer among us, but the building has not been torn down. And it's <laughs> part of the Central Park West Historic District. Did she live there until the end of her life? Oh, okay. So the the persona is kind of interesting because like some of the other very luxurious buildings on the street, it contains only three apartments per floor, uh, which is a plan that survives to this day. Um, so it's a, it really is kind of an amazing uh, holdover from that period. Hmm. And then we have another great, more traditional building. Um, it's the last of the major French Second Empire uh, revival apartments, and that's the Kenilworth. Yes. The Kenilworth also has only three apartments per floor, uh, built in 1905-1908, like the Prasada. It retains its original mansard roof, which is really one of, I think, the glories of Central Park West. And um, if, if people are trying to sort of envision where these buildings are, um, the Kenilworth is just north of the San Remo, which is north of the Langham, which is north of Dakota, which is north of the Majestic. So you have this kind of amazing kind of confluence of different styles all kind of concentrated in one go. And the view actually from the, um, the roof garden at the Metropolitan Museum of Art really kind of shows this array uh, very in a very picturesque fashion. And then we have the First World War. Uh, and then right after the First World War, there's a huge boom in apartment construction uh, that lasts from 1919 to into the Great Depression by a couple of years, into 1931. And so much of it is on Central Park West. Um, some of the more avant-garde buildings uh, went up were Harperley Hall, which is also in the 60s along Central Park West. Yes, uh, an arts and crafts building, a very rare style. And then we have also mm -hmm. the, the Hotel des Artistes, which is uh, close by, um, which is actually set back off of Central Park West uh, and was created as an actual working studio apartment arrangement for artists and illustrators, as was 2 West 67th Street, which a lot of people, I think, pass by without realizing how remarkable it is. It has these amazing two-story windows on both facades. And because the building is on the south side of the, the north side of the block, the, um, the West 67th Street facade 
faces north. North light is what artists want because it maintains a kind of a cool regularity throughout the year. It's very easy to paint by. So it's uh, one of these kind of remarkable sort of holdovers from the early studio apartment kind of culture that I think a lot of people have forgotten. They think, oh, a studio apartment just means a one-room apartment. No, it meant a place where artists actually worked. And, of course, you also are a specialist uh, in the creation and construction of the studio apartment. Yes. Uh, yes. And I have had the pleasure of sitting in on one of your great lectures specifically about the studio apartment. Um, by the way, for those of you who've never uh, sat in on David's lectures, they're uh, great. Uh, and also, David uh, provides a level of wit and witticism when he's on stage, uninterrupted by a pesky interviewer like me that uh, really brings out some of the uh, of the great parts of his work. So I highly recommend them. Um, and I host them periodically, uh, although yes. obviously we're not doing them now because of, no, because not of right the pandemic. Now. Um, and after those buildings went up, we have the period of Art Deco that ushered in a new period of construction, um, not just on Central Park West, but the whole city. But there are some extraordinary apartment buildings that went up on Central Park West. There are in, so in many. Um, just to go through it very, very kind of quickly. Uh, one of the things that happened was that there was a new zoning regulation that was known as the Multiple Dwelling Act. And in the Multiple Dwelling Act, buildings were permitted to rise to heights that they otherwise would not have been if you separated the building out into two towers. That is why four of the major buildings, actually five if you count the Beresford, are buildings that rise up to towers. And these are the tallest buildings on Central Park West. The first one of them is the San Remo, very flamboyant, kind of Spanish Baroque architecture, 27 stories tall. Um, buildings tenants have included Steven Spielberg, Glenn Close, Tony Randall, Diane Keaton, Tiger Woods, Dustin Hoffman, uh, and Rita Hayworth and Haiti Lamar back in the day. Um, who designed the San Remo? Who was the architect? San Remo was designed by Emery Roth, who did many of the most luxurious and kind of more fantastical buildings on the Upper West Side. Um, I have I actually have a listing on the Upper West Side in an Emery Roth building. It's not uh, a grand apartment. It's a, it's a 243 West End Avenue. It's oh, small, it's, uh, yes, yes. Actually, well, all of Roth's buildings have this kind of suave character that is really uh, very redolent of the time. It's, they're really sort of the, the, the cream of the crop on the Upper West Side. Um, then you have three other subsequent Twin Tower buildings, all of which rose to 30 stories. These are gigantic buildings. They're really large for the time period. They're, they're, they're true skyscrapers. The Century, the Majestic, and the El Dorado. Century and the Majestic were developed by Erwin S. Channon and the French architect Jacques Delamere. They're extremely abstracted. They have almost no ornament whatsoever, and they rise up in masses that suggest the drawings by the great Hugh Ferris in his Metropolis of Tomorrow monograph. Um, the Majestic was notorious for a while as the seat of organized crime families. There was actually a shootout that took place in an elevator. Um, there was an attempted assassination attempt. Um, the Century, on the other hand, replaced the magnificent but acoustically deficient Century Opera House, which was hobbled with debt, one of the lost masterpieces of Korean Hastings. But thank goodness we got a good building out of it uh, in the Century. It really is a, a very handsome tower. Then north of that, the El Dorado, the third of the 30-story twin-towered structures, much more fantastic in appearance. Um, metal finials that have been described as Flash Gordon and an aesthetic sometimes categorized as zigzag. Uh, it rises to a height of 30 stories, as I said. Only one of the towers, though, is inhabitable at that height. The other conceals a water tower. 
And uh, for even for people who have not been to New York, uh, they will recognize that building because it was featured in. Uh, well, not Ghostbusters. That's 55 Central Park West. Okay, so, sorry. Yeah, Again, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> information coming from the from the interviewer here. Okay. No, the, the, the Twin Tower one, the El Dorado, is actually the, the north side of the park, and it is visible from the from the uh, the roof garden at um, Metropolitan Museum of Art. But um, tenants have included Ron Howard, Faye Dunaway, Michael J. Fox, Bono, Bruce Willis, and Carrie Fisher. The name of the building is derived from the hotel that once stood on the site. Uh, and it's technically misspelled as El Dorado is two words in Spanish, and the name of the apartment building is El Dorado as one word. And speaking of the Ghostbusters film, uh, there's uh, that is a great Art Deco building, yes. but it doesn't have a name on it. It only has its address. It's sort of a little bit odd in being only uh, sort of identified by an address. And 55 Central Park West is the name of the building. Sometimes it's called the Shandor Building or Spook Central or the Ghostbusters Building kind of colloquially. Um, it is really an outstanding piece of architecture. It has a highly vertical design. It's the first Art Deco building on Central Park West, by the way, the absolute first one, and one of the first Art Deco apartment buildings in the world. Um, it incorporates a shift in brick color from dark plum at the base to wheat gold at the top, thus creating the effect that the building is rising into a shaft of sunlight. This is an architectural trick that some architects employed during this time period. Um, the obviously the the building is associated with Ghostbusters, but it was also the penthouse was also setting for the meeting between Lois Lane and Superman in the 1979 film starring Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. Um, the penthouse was owned by Calvin Klein, and other tenants involved uh, included Donna Karen and Ginger Rogers back in the day. Um, so. If you look at the film Ghostbusters, you'll be able to see where the real building stops and the matte painting begins. They made it look somewhat taller in the film, and they added a fictional crown, which does not exist. Well, that's show business. Um, there's one more business, uh, building I want to ask you about, the residential, but we're going to do that after the next break. We'll be back in a minute, and we'll continue our conversation with David Griffin of Landmark Branding. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you 
run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Coming around the bend on this special program about Central Park West, my guest is the show's special consultant, David Griffin, who's also the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. Um, David, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the public buildings on Central Park West, but there's one building that we haven't talked about yet, uh, and that's the Beresford. Uh, and not to be outdone, unlike uh, its four sort of friends, uh, it's not twin-towered, but actually triple-towered. Yes. The Beresford is not the tallest of Central Park West buildings. It's only 23 floors, but it is actually the largest building on Central Park West, other than the Museum of Natural mm-hmm. History by volume. Um, it's also by Emory Roth. It's unique, as you said, for having three towers, each is capped by this sort of vast Georgian Belvedere. Um, it's the only building on Central Park West to face two different parks, Central Park to the east and Theodore Roosevelt Park, which holds the Museum of Natural History to the south. Um, Helen Gurley Brown, Diana Ross, Jerry Seinfeld, and Isaac Stern have all lived at the Beresford. And the building was the partial inspiration for the fictional American Gardens building in the Bret Easton Ellis novel and subsequent film, American Psycho. Mm. Well, and quite a building it is. And I, I, uh, my office is on 79th Street and frequently pass that incredible building. Uh, and for those who haven't been in it, it's also quite something. It's a block long. Oh, it's um, magnificent. It, yeah. it is. It is. Uh, classic New York. Um, let's talk about the public buildings. Uh, we have the Society of Ethical Culture. Yes. Designed by Robert Cohn in 1905, it's an extremely understated and a rare example of Art Nouveau in New York City. Art Nouveau never really took off to the extent that Art Deco did. Um, the philanthropic organization is a religion centered on ethics rather than theology. Uh, their mission is to encourage respect for humanity and nature and to create a better world. Uh, the building itself kind of respects a kind of new take on things. It's, it's part very much of a culture in the, the early uh, 1900s. The building was built in 1905 um, that was trying to kind of reinvent ethical and moral reasons for kind of continuing uh, culture. Um, there was a, a lawsuit against the, the society, unfortunately, when they, they sought to kind of sell the building. And the court said, no, this is a historic district and you can't just capitalize on the fact that you happen to be where you are. Uh, but they have kind of reconciled themselves, I think, very much so to their location. And from 2001, they have begun a slow process of restoration. They host a, a series of lectures and public programming there. I definitely recommend people check it out. The architecture is very understated, but it's extraordinary nonetheless. Yes, I've actually been to to lectures at the at the society. Um, 
Let's talk about another famous religious institution along Central Park West, the First Church of Christ Scientist. Yes. Um, something historian Christopher Gray called one of the city's most sumptuous churches. It's one of those things that I wonder why it isn't more famous than it is, because it is such a kind of magnificent, kind of really dramatic, really muscular kind of kind of neoclassical building. So this kind of monumental configuration of very abstract French and English prototypes. And it has a very unique obelisk-like spire, like an Egyptian kind of chimney, as one critic put it. Um, the grand scale is notable. Um, the spectacular interior has unfortunately been largely removed, however, um, as the building was planned for condo conversion. Uh, this project has been halted. Um, the building itself is currently empty, and they're looking at ways to kind of move forward, I think, with uh, something more creative for it. Mm. And we have a very famous synagogue that's on Central Park West that actually uh, houses North America's oldest Jewish congregation. Yes, Congregation Sherith Ezrael, also known sometimes as the Old Portuguese and Spanish Synagogue, is the oldest Jewish congregation in the United States and one of the oldest intact congregations in the Western Hemisphere. It was formed in 1654 by Jewish people who arrived from Dutch Brazil. Um, the building is very handsome. It's a kind of a four-column neoclassical building at 17th Street. It is their fifth home in New York City. Uh, the building was first constructed in 1897, then renovated extensively in 1921, giving it its current much more suave appearance. I was very lucky to have gone on a tour of it about a year ago. It's, I had never been, you know, I, I'm Jewish and I go to religious services in different uh, synagogues from time to time. And uh, I was uh, mesmerized by the interior. It's, it's spectacular is not the word. It's, it's solemn, but it's beautiful. And it's uh, done in the Sephardic uh, way with uh, uh, there's not a, um, a, a platform in the front of the sanctuary. It's in the middle of the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And I haven't, uh, yeah, sorry, I haven't had the chance to see the interior myself yet, mm -hmm. but I've heard, I've heard it's absolutely spectacular, like even more beautiful than the exterior. Yes, and um, in um, in one of the in the side chapel, we call it a Beit Hadmidrash, which technically means a, a house of learning, but it's like the uh, 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 the small shul in the shul. Uh, uh, they actually, uh, it's very much designed uh, uh, like in revolutionary times in terms of its of of its layout, and they actually have artifacts in the small chapel that uh, uh, date from the sanctuary that they had in New York around the time of the revolution. Um, we also have the oldest museum dedicated to the history, not just of New York, but anywhere in the United States, and that's on Central Park West. Yes, it is the oldest city museum in the world and the city's first museum, the New York Historical Society, which was founded in 1804. It predates the historical societies of both London and Paris and any other city in the world. Um, its collections of historic artifacts and works of art contain more than a million works, in terms of actual objects, it is the third largest museum in New York City and one of the largest museums in the United States. Um, more than three million books, maps, documents, manuscripts, prints, photographs, drawings, incredible, incredible collections, far-ranging materials relating to the founding and early history of the nation. First documentary evidence of the phrase United States of America, one of the best collections of 18th century newspapers in the United States outstanding collection of materials documenting slavery and reconstruction. Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant, um, his terms of surrender for Robert E. Lee are part of the collection. Um, amazing paintings, decorative arts, 
photographs. Um, the, the list just goes on and on. It's an incredibly broad range of materials relating to the history of the city. Mm. The building was designed by the firm of York and Sawyer, uh, who are also responsible for the magnificent Apple Bank building at Broadway and West 73rd Street. <laughs> New York Historical Society, much more subdued, but still really kind of a, a major kind of work of very, very uh, late Beaux-Arts uh, infused neoclassicism. Yes. Well, like in all shows, David, we're almost out of time and can keep talking about it. But in the minute or so we have left, let's talk about one of my favorite museums in the city, and that's the Museum of Natural History. Yes. The New York Natural History Museum is probably the most famous such museum in the country. It is the largest in the country. It is one of the largest in the world. The museum complex comprises 26 interconnected buildings housing 45 permanent exhibition halls, in addition to the planetarium and the library. It contains over 34 million specimens of plants, animals, fossils, minerals, rocks, meteorites, human remains, human cultural artifacts, and ancient art, as well as specialized collections for frozen tissue, genomic, astrophysical data, only of which a small fraction can be displayed at any given time. Even though the, the building is so vast, it actually covers acres and acres and acres of space. Um, the building is a combination of Romanesque revival and neoclassical components, includes the modern planetarium, as well as the original building by Calvert Vox, subsumed into additions by Jake Cleveland Katie, and a neoclassical Theodore Roosevelt monument mm. by John Russell Pope. Speaking of architecture, a bit of a personal connection, a wonderful friend of mine who sadly is no longer with us was an architect. His name was Fred Bookhart, Frederick Bookhart. Uh, Fred redesigned the lobby in the 1980s, and he also uh, designed the Hall of Minerals and Gems that was done in the 70s. Uh, and wow. That's, 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 that's quite something. New, new, new concepts. Well, David, we're out of time, and the hour seems to have gone by so fast. As I always. know, I know. I really appreciate you coming on the show and not just being a guest on a two per on a two guest show, but uh, uh, coming with your expertise and taking up the whole hour with 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 things that we could have talked about for. We, for we, we, we've only I mean, we could have talked for another for hours and hours about this incredible boulevard. Anybody who goes to New York City and doesn't spend some time, I think, taking just a long, leisurely walk from Columbus Circle up to the Natural Museum history. They're doing themselves a disfavor. The, the, the good stuff sometimes is on the west side. And I know I'm driving my uh, engineer crazy by going over probably 90 seconds on this, but uh, he also lives on Central Park West. So uh, there you go, Sam. Anyway, uh, we've just finished this week's journey to Central Park West. If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. I'd like to thank our sponsors again, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sturrier. Our engineer this evening is the great, great Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is our guest tonight, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
and Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So Now You Know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. you listeners looking to boost your business why not advertise on talk radio nyc with very reasonable rates interested simply send us a message on our website talkradio.nyc are you a small business trying to navigate the covid19 related employment laws Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 